You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. If you have your Bible, you should know what book we're in by now, but we're in Judges. And so if you want to go ahead and be turning to Judges chapter 17, we're going to be looking at Judges 17 and 18 today. The first commentary that I opened up about this passage uh, said right at the beginning, I've never heard anyone ever preach a sermon on this passage. And so, you know, if it's a commentary that's saying that, that may be a little stressed out to read right off the bat, but you know... Um, we're committed to preaching through the text of Scripture. We believe that all Scripture is profitable and useful for building up our church. And so um, the first read-through, I think I was like, oh, no, what am I getting myself into? But uh, as I've gone through this for a few weeks, um, I believe that there's a clear message from the Lord in here for our church today. Um, I know that I was definitely feeling challenged and convicted in it this week. And so I pray that uh, God would speak to you as clearly as He's spoken to me through this passage. Um, today, this, 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 is about, uh, this is about people who try to make something, uh, try to make religion in an image that's really going to work for them. They try to make something uh, that they're really not qualified to do. They're really not, uh, don't have the ability to just kind of form this, uh, this religion that they're trying to, to form, and it has disastrous consequences for them. I don't know if you have ever tried to do anything yourself that you're not really qualified for. I have a long history of trying to do things that I'm not really qualified and prepared for. Uh, one example of this is uh, you know right after we Emily and I had gotten married, um, and we, we'd actually just moved back to uh, my hometown in L.J., and we, we lived there for a few years, and uh, we were living in this house, this nice house, and on one side of us was uh, Bob, and on the other side of us was Larry. So if you grew up with VeggieTales, you're going to love that. So we had uh, Bob and Larry as our neighbors. Um, if you've never watched VeggieTales, then I'm sorry, that's going to fly right over your head, and you're probably better off for it. But um, for those of you who did, yeah, so... Uh, Bob and Larry. Bob and Larry were really big car guys. Um, Bob and Larry, like, so especially Bob, he had like this three car garage that he had, and it was like his man palace in there. He had like couches. He had every, it was beautiful. He spent all his time in there. I don't think I ever drove by that he wasn't in there working on. He had like a, like a 60s Corvette in there that he was always working on. And so he really knew what he was doing. And, and Larry was more just like fix everything. You know, he could fix anything and everything. And that, that wasn't really me. You know, my dad growing up, if something was broken, he was all about calling somebody to come and fix it. He was not a, not a Mr. Fixer-Upper kind of guy. But I kind of like, man, I want to be like that. You know, Bob and Larry are super cool. I want to be able to fix my car if I need to. And so my first step for this was like, man, I'm going to learn how to I'm going to learn how to change my oil in my car. OK, so I'm going to learn how to change my oil. So uh, so we go and, you know, an oil change is what, like 16 or 17 bucks. I think I invested about 120, 130 bucks in the, the stuff that I and I pull my wife's van up onto these little block uh, lifts that I, I bought for it. And I get under there and, you know, I think you know, I watched a YouTube video or two. I think I'm good. I know what I, I know what I'm doing. But all, all I know is, is about halfway through this process, when I'm pouring new oil in, uh, I look underneath the car and something didn't get connected under there because we got about five or six quarts of oil just covering the entire 
driveway, okay? And so I run next door to Bob, and Bob comes and rescues me. Bob and Larry got uh, plenty of uh, laughs at my expense as I was trying to, to figure these things out, and he was like, what, what an idiot. Um, and so, so, so that, that kind of, you know, that $150 oil change there really ended my oil change in days, you know? Um, I, I, you know, I, maybe we can figure out how to do some things, but changing the oil, probably not going to be one of them. So, uh, but what I want you to think about, the reason I tell you that is because I want you to think about just what a disaster it is to think about this nice wide driveway and just this oil all over it, just ruining it. The kind of mistake, the kind of disaster, the kind of mess that you make if you try to do something that you really should have no business messing around with, you really have no business doing. And that's what we really see with this, this man, Micah, in this passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at today. But for him, he's making a mess of his life. He's making a mess for his family because he's basically trying to form a religion in his own image. Okay, and so we're going to be looking at this passage today in Micah 17 and 18. Um, it's a pretty long passage, so we're going to break it up a little bit as we go. Um, but as we're going through this, we're going to be looking at three uh, big picture kind of ideas. I um, mean, we're going we're to go through a couple of different slides as we're going through this. I'm going to share a couple things with you. Okay, so, so the big things that we want, I want you to, to be looking at as we're, we're uh, examining this passage today, we're going to be observing with the author because he really is just kind of watching this thing unfold. He doesn't really make a lot of judgments on it himself, but through his observation, we're going to be able to pick up on three things. Uh, the reason for false religions, so the reason that people develop these false religions, uh, God's judgment on these false religions, and then the antidote to these false religions, okay? So that's what we're going to be looking at today. So just really quickly, the background before we dig into this, and I'm, normally I would read through a passage straight through, but this one's so big, we'll, we'll, we'll stop and pause a couple of times in it to talk about it. Um, but background on this one, so really this is kind of a different uh, part in Judges, because for the first uh, 16 chapters, we go kind of chronologically, and it's big picture, okay? So it's kind of this zoomed out view, and we're looking at the people who are ruling over Israel, we're looking at the judges and their big, you know, kind of political wars with other kingdoms and other nations. And it's talking about the whole kingdom's obedience or lack of obedience to God. And now these last few chapters that we're going to look at this week and next week are really more, we don't know exactly when they took place in Judges. Um, they could have, you know, they're not at the very end. The, the chronological end of Judges is, is the end of Samson. So at some point during the book of Judges, these took place. And they're really kind of zoomed in on more individual kind of characters. So we're seeing how this lack of a godly king plays out in individual people's lives. Okay, so not the big kingdom picture, but a couple of individual people, how this is playing out as they're interacting with each other. And the big shift that we see, because so much of Judges is about idolatry, but one of the big things that we see different in this passage we're looking at today is, is not so much the gods around them being a, a, a temptation to them, but really more how uh, Micah and how the tribe of Dan and how this Levite, these people who are these characters in this story, how they uh, try to form the worship of God in their own image. 
how they have a little bit of truth, how they have a little bit of a desire to obey God, but how they, uh, they, they kind of twist it and shape it into a religion that's going to fit them and their culture and their lifestyle a little better. Okay, so that's really what we're going to see in this passage today. So let's, pit, let's start up with a story in Micah chapter 17, and we're going to look at 17 through 18. So it says, There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. Okay? So let's look at this next slide really quick here. I'm not going to do this the whole time, but I just want to point out a couple of things here. So here's Israel, um, and if you see, uh, Ephraim is the little, it's written in red down there. Okay? So uh, we don't, Jerusalem is not huge yet. Um, Bethlehem is a major city. Shiloh is where the center of God's worship is. It's where like the tabernacle and the presence of God, where the people of Israel are going at this time to worship God in faithfulness and obedience. Ephraim is a little southwest of there. And if you were to see on like an elevation map, it's, it's, it's hilly. It's a, it's a hill country, like he says in here. And it's kind of wilderness. It's not really heavily populated, not a lot of people there. So it's this hill country. And so there's this guy who's living there, Micah, and he's just stolen some money from his mom, some silver, a, a pretty large treasure, okay? Pretty large treasure. She actually handles it pretty well, I think, um, maybe surprisingly to us. So he says, you know, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, that was me. Uh, I'm going to give it back to you. Here you go. Uh, and she says, Blessed be my son by the Lord. He restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. Okay, pretty good so far. Dedicating this massive treasure to the Lord, to God. Um, that's a good thing. But then we start to see where things start to go uh, astray. To make a carved image and a metal image. Okay, so now we have immediate disobedience to the law of God. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and, a house, and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I want to show you a couple of things really quick here. So let's look at what we're talking about with these, these household idols. So, so uh, on the right-hand side, we have some of these household gods, okay? And these were taken from some of these groups that, that were in this time period, these little statues um, like animals, different kinds of things like that. On the left hand, we have the, the ephod that he's talking about. This was part of the priestly garments, okay? So this was part of uh, what the high priest was supposed to wear. So again, we have this blending and this mixture of true religion, of obedience to God, but he's doing it in a way that's not, you know, it's supposed to be for the high priest. It's supposed to be for the one who's offering these sacrifices to God. It's only supposed to be a Levite who's wearing this. And He's blending this with sort of these household religions, these pagan gods in the world around him. Now, this next picture is really going to kind of scary, so maybe give you some nightmares. All right. So not from a horror movie. This is actually 
a teraphim, which is what this word, what some of these words here are, are translated as in, uh, you, if you read the King James Version, um, be a teraphim. And so what this is, is it would be a lot of times, this one's actually taken from Jericho around the time that Jericho fell. So really near this exact same time period here. And this, the reason I want to point this out to you is because very likely that this is what he's doing. What they would do is they would take these, uh, they would take the skulls of their dead relatives and they would make these clay casts out of them. Or sometimes if they had money, silver casts out of these things. And then they would hang them on the wall and then they would talk to them. And they believed that they would get wisdom and get knowledge from God or the gods from these things. Okay, so, so very likely what we have with Micah is him kind of taking these ideas and applying them to God. So in, he, he wants to talk to God. He wants to set up this shrine to God. And so he makes this silver teraphim, hangs it on his wall with his other little household gods, makes this ephod, which we're going to see he puts on his son to be his priest. And he's trying to set up his own way to worship God in his own little house. And you can turn it to the next one just so we don't have to stare at that ugly picture anymore. All right. And so, and then notice what he says in verse six. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's the, that's the most editorial comment we kind of get from the writer here. Okay. So much of the story is just told very much just as is. This is what happened. But the one thing we keep coming back to a couple of times, we're going to see it again later on, is there's no king in Israel. Everybody's doing what's right, no one not. So basically, he's just kind of, his commentary on the side is, this is what happens when people just kind of try to do things their own way. This is what people do when there's no king who's faithfully enforcing God's law. People just start to kind of do things their own way. They kind of do what they want. So verse 7, Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he sojourned there. He said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I, where I may find a place. So we have uh, a, an unemployed Levite. So remember the Levites were the priestly class of Israel. We have a, an unemployed Levite who's wandering around looking for, looking for work, looking for something to do. And in verse 10, Micah said to him, stay with me. Be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. So Micah sees this as an upgrade. Okay, again, he's not trying to be he's not trying to worship idols. He is trying to have a, he's trying to worship God, but he's doing it in his own sort of way. But he sees this ability to bring in a Levite. Right, let's bring in the Levite. It's better than my son. This is a real priest. We're going to be even more blessed when, he, when we bring him in. And that really is what we're going to see that this is all about. This is about how, you know, the blessing of God in Shiloh, the blessing of God on the people. Let's bring this to me. Let's bring this to me and my family. Okay? This presence of God, I want to hear what God says. I don't want to have to go through this priest and, and follow this way that God has done it. I want to have my own priest. And so he's just continuing to sort of form his own little cultic religion uh, at his house. So verse 11, the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. And then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. So again, we see there his motivation. The Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite. 
So he's thinking about these external things, these external forms. I've got a Levite now, so now I know God's going to bless us. Now I know God's going to prosper us. So verse, chapter 18, in those days, there was no king in Israel. So again, we see the same repeated refrain. There's no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. If you remember back to Joshua, we, when the, the promised land was invaded, started out well with the fall of the walls of Jericho. But then we see people in, back then begin to compromise. They don't conquer the entire land. They don't drive everyone out. They don't establish themselves completely. And this is kind of the result of some of that. Dan, as a tribe, has not received their inherited land yet. They haven't been able to, to, to find that place. So they're still kind of wandering as a tribe. So in verse 2, So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtal, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. Uh, and so, again, we see here with Micah, and, and if you were to read some sermons from the Middle Ages about Micah, a lot of times they focus on his great hospitality. They don't even really focus on his idolatry. Because what we have here is a real person, okay? He's not, we, we always want to go to somebody's evil or somebody's good, okay? But it's not a fairy tale. It's a real person. He's a, he's a nice guy. You know, hey, come stay with me. I'll show you my hospitality. I'll do these things for you. And so they come and stay with him, and they lodge with him there. And in verse 3, when they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite, and they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What's your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He's hired me. I've become his priest. So he's like, Man, you don't, we won't believe the good deal that I got here. You know, They recognized this guy from back in Bethlehem, probably. And they're like, What are you doing here? What's going on? And so he tells them. He tells them, Man, I've, got, I've, got a, I've been set up here. So they say to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. So if you look at uh, this other little picture that's up on the, the screen, so down on the bottom left, we have um, where, the, the, where Ephraim is, the hill country of Ephraim, where Dan moves from, from Zora and they move up. And then way up there, we have Laish. It's up above the Sea of Galilee. So you have the Sidonians who live in this area, especially concentrated right along the coast. But Laish is over, um, again, in kind of more of a wilderness-type area. It's a nice little town, nice little village, but it's away from the strongholds of the Sidonians, which is what kind of people they are that are living there. And so they send these spies, and they find this town. It's like, oh, this is going to be good for us. We're going to go and settle there. So, verse 8. When they came to their brothers at Zorah and Ashtal, their brothers said to them, What do you report? And they said, Arise, and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. 
So 600 men from the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtal, and went up and encamped at Kirith-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called uh, Manadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kirith-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Lyash said to their brothers, Do you know that in this house there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now, therefore, consider what you will do. Okay, so basically saying, hey, guys, there's a whole treasure trove in here, but not just a treasure trove. There's a man of God in here, and there are these images that link us with this blessing of God. This seems to be doing this well for Micah, and he's got this whole thing just for his own little family here. Now, what do you want to do about it? So the 600 men of Dan, uh, of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance at the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, while the priests stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They said, Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth. Come with us and be to us as a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be the priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So he's moving up in the world. All right, he's happy. Uh, again, the emphasis is on what benefits me, what's going to give me more, what's going to give me more prestige, what's going to give me more wealth, what's going to give me more fame, what's going to give me more glory. And so verse 21, so they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. And when they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, what is the matter? What's the matter with you that you came with such a company? And he said, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way and Micah saw that they were too strong for him. And he turned and went back to his home. How sad is that statement right there, that everything that Micah has invested in this religion, all of his good intentions, all of his bad intentions, the good thoughts he had, the bad thoughts he had, his theft, his mother's blessing, it's all been invested in this. And now it comes to nothing. It comes to nothing. Verse 27, But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Elijah, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab, and they built the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor who was born in Israel. But the name of the city was Laash at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So now we find out at the end of the story that this is sadly a descendant of Moses himself who is participating in this. The one who gives the law to the people of Israel is violating the law in such brazen ways. Verse 31, the last verse here. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made 
as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So again, they're, they're letting you know, they're not putting anything in here for no reason, they're letting you know that this is a competing religion. This is a competing kind of cultic, synch- syncretized religion with these religions around there. It's not this true worship of God, it's something different. So, this long story with no real clear points in all of this, what are some things that we can draw from this passage today? I want us to look at three things. I want us to look at three things today that we can see from this passage. So the first thing I want us to look at is the reason for false religion. The reasons for false religion. So one of the first reasons that we see is the desire to control God. God is not something or someone that we can control. But for human beings, we look all the way back to the beginning, there's this desire to control God. So much of religion in the ancient world all the way up through through today is, if I just do certain things, if I just pray in a certain way, if I say this magic thing, then God is going to do something for me. And I can know predictably how he's going to act and how he's going to behave, and I can get what I want from him. This is not the way God has revealed himself, but there's something in fallen human beings that have this desire to want to control God. Okay, so whether it's saying a certain prayer, we we look at at the world around us today and we see um, pastors who are going to spread this exact same kind of teaching, or we see preachers who are going to say the same kind of teaching. If you just pray this certain prayer, say this certain thing, and these kinds of books become bestsellers because we want these shortcuts. We want these easy routes to God's blessing. We don't want easy routes to God, necessarily. We don't want easy routes to to holiness or righteousness. We want, like in this passage, we want the easy routes to an easy life or to a blessed life of abundance. Those kind, that's what we want. We want the blessings that God can give. We want the, the control that we can have over our life. We don't want this unpredictable God who is truly sovereign and who might have a different plan for our life than we have. And so we want to find these ways to control God. So it's very obvious we see in this passage that Micah has this desire to control God. I don't want to go to Shiloh. I don't know what the priest there is going to say. I want to have religion here, and I want to have religion with a priest that I control so that I can have this for myself. Dan, in this passage, the exact same way. We'll bring a priest of our own. We'll buy our own blessing. We're about to go on this dangerous expedition. We want God's blessing on it. Let's, buy our, let's take ourselves a priest. Let's take ourselves this connection to God that they have, this, this, this desire to control God. We also have this uh, desire, a lot of times unspoken. I don't think many people would say this out loud, but we have this tendency to try to create a God in our own image, to elevate what we care about, what we believe, what we want to emphasize into who God is. Okay, we, we want to believe that God sees the world how we see the world, that God feels about things the way we feel about things, that if we have weaknesses or sins, God probably doesn't really care about those too much. Those probably aren't that big of a deal. But the things that we care about deeply, God must care about those things very deeply as well. That that our concerns become God's concerns. And we start to form this image of God in in our image. This image of God in our image. One of the main reasons that we have this command in the Old Testament not to create uh, uh, these images of God is because, okay, so there's no human being, no created thing, no lion, 
as much as we like Aslan, you know, no lion, no, no, uh, no, no creature, no created thing, no wise old man that can truly represent the full character and being of God. And so what you end up doing is you end up creating, what do I want God to be? What do I, what's going to bring comfort to me? And so we create these things that emphasize certain things about God, and they can't capture the truth of who God is. And so we have this command not to do these things because it cannot capture who God is. And even if we don't make these graven images of God ourselves today, in our own head, we have to constantly be conscious of the ways that we try to shape God in our own image, the ways that we think about God. How many times have we, have we heard or, or maybe even said, well, that's just not the God that I serve. That's just not the God that I believe. I just don't see God in that way. And the truth is, it doesn't really matter how we see God or how we think about God. We need to be shaped by what his word tells us he is. That's what we need to see, not shaping him in our own image based on our feelings. And so there are aspects of God that are not relevant to culture. So a lot of times we just want to create a God that we can, where, where we can sort of ignore those things that are embarrassing, a God that kind of fits our cultural sensibilities. And this is not something that's new to our culture. Every single moment throughout history, whatever the beliefs and values of the culture around them are, there's things that have not really lined up that well with the truths of Scripture. There's things that they haven't really liked. There's things that, that haven't really been values of their world around them. And that's very true today as well. We live in a time that happens to be very antagonistic towards a lot of the truths that are revealed in scriptures. And there's this huge pressure by society and by our culture to conform the truths of God's word and the truths about God into what our world would like for God to be. Okay, That God is not politically correct. That the God that I see in the Old Testament is embarrassing to me because people on Twitter don't think that that's cool. You know, because people on Instagram would, would think that this is embarrassing because that's not how we talk nowadays. And so we need to sanitize this. We need to clean this version of God up and make him fit what our culture can choose to accept. But that's, again, not who God is. It's a fake version of God. But we have this desire to, to, to worship God, but also not be embarrassed of him to worship God, but also not have him demand things of us that are going to make us uncomfortable or that are going to really challenge us or convict us too much. So we start to form this God in our own image that works for us, that blesses us without demanding anything from us. So it's a religion that I can control. It's a God that I contain that fits into my life and that doesn't disrupt it too much. We want to force this divine blessing, um, get access to God so that we can get what we want and get what we need from God without those demands that he might place on us. And so this is key. There's one other kind of aspect that's a little different than those that I also want to put on here because I want to try to have a little empathy with Micah as well. It's easy for us to look at these people and see uh, the negative, and there's definitely, like we just went through, plenty of negative there. But another aspect, I think, that makes people want to, another reason people want to kind of uh, turn to these false or more like synchronized sort of religions uh, is because of God's hiddenness at times. God's hiddenness at times. What do I mean by his hiddenness? Well, you look at this passage of scripture 
And God is not really, it doesn't seem like God is really there. It doesn't seem like he's really around. He's not really like a character in this story other than the fact that people are trying to get blessings from him. But unlike the rest of Judges, he's not really active in this passage. So for Micah, living off in the wilderness, away from Shiloh, away from the center of what God is doing, probably in one of those 40-year periods where there's not a lot going on between God and the people that we've read about in Judges. and we, you know, He's kind of in this. It seems like, where is God? God is... You know, God is not real in my life. Yeah, if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times I think we, we can really feel the same way. Like, if God is real, if he's there, why am I not hearing from him in more real, active ways in my life? You know, if God loves me the way the scripture says he loves me, why is it that I don't feel that love in some of my deepest and darkest moments? Why is he, if God could speak comfort to me, why is he not speaking comfort to me? If, if I have a relationship with somebody and I'm not present with them, I'm not talking to them, then that's not a very good relationship. So we kind of feel that way about God at times. And I feel like Micah probably feels that way about God. And so the reason I put the little horror, you know, mask up there is to show you what Micah is trying to do is he's trying to bring God into his house in a way that he can see and touch and speak to and find comfort from. And so as, as silly as some of these things are for us, as much as we want to just you know, shake somebody and say, what are you thinking? You know, we, do the, we have the same desires a lot of time. The, you know, where is God in real practical ways in my life? When I lose a loved one, when I go through suffering, when I feel like I haven't heard the voice of God for years, I feel like God is, is silent in my life. Where is he? And it drives us to this tendency to look for other ways to connect to God, to make up ways that we can connect to God on our own that aren't necessarily revealed to us in Scripture, that drive us to some of these false forms of religion or these kind of false promises that can give us hope. So we're driven not necessarily by bad motives. I don't think Micah is driven by bad motives. I genuinely don't. I think he wants to connect with God. He wants to know God. Yes, now the, the motive of wanting to receive God's blessing is definitely present there. But overall, I mean, you see a person who probably in his time is seen as a very religious man. I mean, we're living in a time period in Judges where many people, there are people doing what's right in their own eyes. So I guarantee you there's plenty of people who are not seeking God at all. So you have a man who wants to know God, wants to connect with God but he's doing it in a way that God has not prescribed, and he's doing it in a way where he thinks he can manipulate and force God to give him what he wants, and it's not going to be there for him. And In the end, what does it do? It leaves him with nothing. So when we try to connect with God in ways that God hasn't prescribed, or we try to force God's hand in our lives, it's going to leave us emptier even than we were before in those feelings. So what's the solution then? What's the solution to, to this hiddenness problem of God? Well, first of all, we have to understand that the big part of the reason that we can't hear from and see God clearly is not because God doesn't love us and not because he's not there, but because of our sin, because of our sin, because of our rebellion against him. We know that our hearts are, have, been, have become deceptive and desperately sick and wicked. And so when we see the world, we don't see God's clear activity in the world. 
when we see our lives, we don't see what God is, is clearly doing. We, we can't because of our sin. So we're seeing it through this lens of our own sinfulness and our own brokenness. And we're also seeing it through the lens of what our sin collectively has done to the world. It, our sin collectively has brought suffering and, uh, and, and, and trials and, and death and those things into the world. Our choices have brought this about. And so when we're, when we're going through these things, that's what we see a lot of the times. And we don't see God. And also because God, again, is so different and other than we are. And so just by his very nature, we can't see him completely, especially in that sinful state. And we see that again and again in the Old Testament when people encounter just a little bit of God's presence because of their sinfulness is literally killing people or almost killing people. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but that's the holiness of God. And so part of his holding back certain aspects of himself is because he's so other than us and so holy that he can't, we can't even experience that kind of level of holiness and goodness. But we do have clearly revealed the person of Jesus as we see him in the scriptures, and we have the clear testimony of God and his promises and those are things that we're called to cling to in those moments when God seems like he's not there. And the good, comforting truth for us as Christians is that as God begins to work in our hearts and in our lives, we become more receptive to what he wants to say to us. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, in our life groups, in our DNAs, and in normal conversations as we speak encouragement to each other, as we speak scripture to each other, and we start to see and hear God in the lives of our fellow believers as we speak truth and life into each other. We can hear the voice of God as he speaks to us through his word, and so we don't have to feel isolated and alone. So what we find is Unlike Micah, if instead we follow what God's word has revealed us, we'll find that joy and peace and comfort that we've been looking for all along. We just can't find it on our own. We can't find it apart from God and what he's done for us and how he's revealed himself to us. Now quickly, the second thing, God's judgment on false religion we see here as well. God's judgment on false religion. So God says that, uh, that we're called, or God says, worship me as I am, not as you want me to be, and worship me as my word directs, not as your heart would suggest. He calls us not to worshiping him how our hearts desire, but how his word clearly reveals. God is not going to be reduced to something that you and I can control. He's not going to be limited by what our perceptions of him can be. If God could be limited or controlled by a human being, then that is not a God that I would want to serve. So God cannot be limited by our desires, by our emotions. Um, Self-made religion is always going to disappoint us. We see in chapter 18, 25 and 26, uh, this disappointment. The people of Dan going on their own way. Micah, they're too strong going home alone. This worship that he's created is going to disappoint him. It's not going to have the answers that he's looking for. It's not going to provide that blessing that he so longs for and so desires. False religion doesn't tend to make people um, overly wicked necessarily. 
Uh, a lot of times we have that idea that idolatry is going to make people into like, you know, demon, you know, d- demonic, evil, goth people. That's not necessarily the case. There's some religions in the world that we could name and talk about right now that make people very nice, clean cut, you know, normal, kind, probably good neighbors. So false religion doesn't always necessarily make us bad people, but false religion is never going to, to give us that joy and that peace that only God can provide. God shows in this passage clearly how stupid false religions are. And he shows it throughout the scriptures again and again. So we don't uh, often see this because we don't see our own false religion. We don't see that syncretism, that way that we try to you know, connect outward religion uh, with reality or, or false religion with the truth. So what, what does our false religions today look like? Because we're not necessarily setting up household gods in our houses. We're not doing those things necessarily. But we definitely do have several ways that we participate in these false religions. First of all, we have just outward religion. If I go to church, if I give some money, if I you know, do this, this thing, then God's going to bless me and my family. So we, we feel like this, this obligation or this, I have to do this certain thing and then God's going to bless me or God's going to do something for me. So it's these outward, um, you know, there's been really popular best-selling books that are like, if you just say this certain thing or say this certain prayer, or buy this certain oil or whatever the case is, then God's going to be obligated to give you this thing or do this blessing for you. Uh, man-centered religion, it's all about me is when we create God completely in our own image. It's all about me and what I want. When we tend to view ourselves as the center of the universe instead of viewing God as the center of the universe. Um, tame, non-threatening religion. Uh, a religion where we just all get along and just be happy and just no, no threats to anybody's emotions or feelings or lives at all. We're just going to, you know, we all, it makes us all a little kinder, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that's a religion I think that uh, our world today is becoming increasingly uh, a fan of. That we kind of promote. We're, we're in this, uh, you know, don't demand anything from me. Don't ask me to change any behavior in my life. Just give me a little encouragement. You know, just give me a little encouragement every week. Just give me a little pat on the back. Just tell me I have a place where I can, you know, be buried when I die. And that's the kind of religion we're looking for. Some, some of the little outward signs and symbols, a little encouragement, a little family supper every now and then. And that's kind of what we're looking for. But no demands placed on our life. No, uh, no ability in that kind of religion to walk through suffering because it doesn't, that doesn't compute. It doesn't necessarily mesh with that. It's just easy kind of religion without demands. And this ultimately is going to lead to tragedy. It's going to leave us either losing our faith because it doesn't work and it's not real, because we're going to find out that those prayers we pray don't bring the blessings we want, or we're not able to actually control God or the circumstances of our life through these things. You know, or it's, it's going to leave us just with a really shallow form of religion that never gets deeper, that never causes any change in our hearts and our lives, or never causes us to be more like Jesus or love him more. The last thing I want to, to talk about very briefly right now is the antidote to, to all of this. And we see it subtly but clearly in this passage of Scripture. The antidote to false religion is we need a king. We need a king. We need King Jesus. That's what this passage points to. We need Jesus. This passage points to people's desperate need for a Savior. Uh, again, they would have several Saviors throughout the book of Judges, but those Saviors were not enough. Then they would get a king, and that king wouldn't be enough. And then they would even get a good king, like David or, or like Solomon, and that wouldn't be enough. And so they were coming a little closer, but there's still this incredible gap 
between where they are, even at the best of times, and where God wants them to be. The true antidote to this is Jesus. We see here that everyone is a worshiper. The only question is, what are we looking to for our ultimate purpose, our ultimate meaning? Who are we worshiping? Who are we worshiping? The religion of Micah is a religion of self-worship. He is worshiping his own desires. He's worshiping what he wants, what he can make. It's very small-minded religion. Sure, it's a little safe, but there's no power. Whereas when we worship Jesus, there may be demands placed in our life that we're not comfortable with. There may be answers to questions that we don't necessarily like, that we have to work out, that we have to adjust to. But at the same time, there's also hope and power and strength in the midst of that. Jesus is the king that Israel needs, and Jesus is the king that we need. Without God, Israel is doomed. Without God, we are doomed. Without Jesus, there is no hope. Without Jesus, there's no hope for us either. We see in verse 31, God's tabernacle was in Shiloh. And it should have been the focus of Micah and the tribe of Dan to go to Shiloh and worship God and meet with him there. That tabernacle is this symbol of God's presence with his people. We have a true and better tabernacle in Jesus. The tabernacle is this symbol of God incarnate, God in flesh. We talked about that hiddenness of God. Where is God? Why is he not real to me? He was real to them when they met him in the tabernacle, and he's real to us when we meet him through Jesus. That's when he becomes real to us. That's when he speaks to us. That's when he changes us and transforms us. Again, not in ways that we always like, not in ways that are necessarily always comfortable or easy for us, but it's in ways that are real and in ways that will bring lasting peace and lasting change. So a couple of practical takeaways for us as we wrap up this morning. First of all, no true religion as it's revealed in scriptures, religion, no true religion, no true, uh, the true gospel as it's revealed in scripture. Don't be suckered in by false religion. And the only way that we can avoid these syn this syncretism of our culture, being influenced by our culture, is to know the truth revealed in scriptures. It's so important for us to, to be deeply rooted in God's word through personal study, through uh, coming to a, a church that's going to preach and teach through hard passages of scripture, through uh, opening it up with other believers and hearing from other believers about how they've applied it to their lives and how God's walked with them through these things. We have to be deeply rooted in scripture so that we're not duped by false religion. The second thing, we need people in our life who we can be accountable to and who will call us out on our sin. We need people in our life who can do this for us, who can, who can speak truth to us, whether we need comfort from God's word or whether we need a butt kicking from God's word, whatever that may necessarily be, we need people in our life who can speak that to us. And so we need to ask ourselves, do I have those people in my life? So about their sin and can speak that kind of truth into each other's lives. But do you have that in your life? And forget about controlling and manipulating God and trust in him in faith. So what we see here is that as we're going through life, there's going to be things we don't understand. There's going to be periods of life where we, it feels like make his word and cling to those things with all of our strength and with all of our mind. Cling to the true promises that he's revealed. 
it, it becomes easy in those moments for us to turn to false religions. That's when we become vulnerable. And if we don't have a firm foundation in his word, if we don't have people in our life who can speak truth to us, then it's easy for us to get kind of led astray by false religion and by false uh, truth. And it's not going to bring us hope in the midst of those times. And it's not going to bring us the truth that we need in the midst of those times. So, so what that all points to is, again, not our own plans for connecting with God, but knowing the, the ways that God has revealed for us to receive that grace and mercy in our lives, those simple, normal ways that he's given us, connecting with God's people, worshiping, hearing his word, prayer, those, those simple ways that are never going to sell a billion copies of a book because it's not easy, but it's true. And it's going to truly give us that shalom kind of peace in our lives every single day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father God, thank you so much for, thank you so much for this, uh, this word. Thank you so much for the challenge that you give us in it. And uh, Lord, I pray that as we enter this time of communion, that you would just uh, continue to use these ordinary ways and ordinary means um, to speak this truth into our hearts and our lives today, God. In Jesus' name, amen.